Hallo und willkommen zur 44. Folge von Völlig Gut. Heute hat unser Podcast ein deutlich deutscher Note. Considering I struggle to wrangle my own native tongue, I wholeheartedly apologize to any German speakers whose language I've just butchered for the second time since my GCSE German speaking test. Das war nicht gut. Anyway, today's episode, if you haven't already guessed, has a distinctly German flavour to it, much like a currywurst. Mmm, lecker. Last month, German staff bandmaster Heinrich Schmidt retired from the role after 34 years of distinguished service as bandmaster. It was our privilege to sit down and chat with him about those years in the band, his life, his faith, and how they're all intrinsically connected. Also in this episode, we hear from Salvationist composer Andrew Wainwright as he takes a look at his seminal major work, Variations on Vas Labet. Join us on that musical journey to discover how Andrew uses that traditional German hymn in his set of Variations for Brass Band. Stranded and sunburned on the arid island this month is Reuben Schmidt, who gives tribute to his father's work with the staff band, as well as answering that all-important question. But first, our interview for this episode. Well, thank you, Heinrich, so much for joining us on Fully Scored. It's a real pleasure to be able to speak to you today. We're speaking to you just a few weeks after your final concert, after 34 years as bandmaster of the German staff band, so we'll speak about that shortly. But first of all, I'd like to get to know a little bit about you and your background. So my first question would be, what are some of your earliest memories of the Salvation Army? Yes, really, uh, when I was a baby, I, uh, like you maybe would say, a Salvation Army child. And uh, my father in these days was the bandmaster. And so I had a link to music very, very, very soon as a young child. And how did that influence your father being the bandmaster impact you? Did you immediately start learning uh, about music and playing an instrument as soon as you can remember? I became interested to see my brothers playing instruments and uh, they were all a lot older than me. Uh, I'm a very late child in the family uh, and I, I drove them sometimes crazy in wanting to play and they gave me an old bugle, you would say bugle, and I played on this and um, was a pain in their neck. And soon as I could hold the cornet, I tried to play and I came to the little um, brass ensemble in the core. We didn't have a full brass band, of course. We were eight, nine players. Uh, then there was no YP band. I joined the group with eight, an age of eight and uh, sat there on my place, second cornet. And uh, yes, I remember all this. It was great for me to being part of it. And other than your family members that you just mentioned, was there anyone else that influenced you in those early years and inspired you to want to make music? Yes, uh, especially, I, I would say both brothers. One was a good cornet player and the other very good euphonium player. And uh, I always tried to uh, follow them to get a better standard, to try to try to go further. So that uh, influenced my musical life in general to be uh, not to stay on a point, to aim a next step. 
And what happened next then for you once you caught the music bug? Did you go on to study music? Yes. Uh, but first of all, uh, you have to remember that when I was born in 1948, that was just after the war, and uh, many people had difficult and bad experiences. So my father and uh, another trumpet player in the family said, you have to study first something serious, not going right away in music. So I did that, but uh, my real inner voice, you maybe would say, uh, brought me to, back to music and I studied for teaching. Uh, and I became later a high school teacher. And uh, after many, many years doing this work, I had a chance to uh, teach for eight years, the last eight years of my professional life at the university, the Folkwang University for Arts in Essen, um, and worked with very good, famous people together. And uh, that was a great time. Finally, it was uh, a way which made through the Salvation Army. They knew me as uh, bandmaster of the German staff band, and they were interested to get uh, brass ensemble, especially direction to brass banding in the university. And we started there as the first university in Germany with a brass band. Um, that was quite an experience. and. Uh, gave me a lot of chances to explain Salvation Army music. And how did that role come about, working at the Fulvang University in Essen and being a, a lecturer in brass bands and leading the brass band at the university? How did that happen to be? Yes, they, uh, I, I got a phone call one day uh, from a professor. He's part, uh, a member of the German brass section. Uh, they're quite famous, uh, 10 players ensemble and uh, he said that he wanted to start at uh, Essen with a brass band and uh, they wanted to, to get me to know and I like always in every world I had a kind of audition in conducting and working with students and uh, then they took me it was a great experience fantastic and a slightly off-tangent question here. I know, uh, having visited Germany a few times to do some orchestral projects myself, there seems to be a real good tradition of music making in Germany, certainly the parts that I visited and uh, music being quite highly respected. Are brass bands quite highly respected in Germany, or has that changed over the last few years? It has changed. Uh, I think in the last 10, maybe 15 years, uh, maybe more, uh, many brass bands started in Germany. So uh, it, it's going forward, uh, but a shame not in the army. I'm very sorry about that. Yeah, and it hurts me in a way. Oh, thank you for sharing that insight. So let's chat about the German staff band, shall we? As I mentioned, uh, you've just retired after 34 years as bandmaster of the band uh, and I believe you were one of the original members in the reform band uh, and were asked to reform the band in 1989. Yes. What was your reaction to being asked to reform the band? Uh, I was thrilled. I mean in that moment, the first moment we didn't know that just 50 years before the old German staff band had to finish during the, the very difficult Nazi time and uh, 
it became really, we got an invitation to Scarborough from uh, the British territory to play there. Um, and uh, we didn't have a group could manage it. So THQ decided to get the parts of the Plön, Plön, the music school A band, and maybe with some other players to do this special service, very encouraging for us. And we did this and the enthusiastic was so high after that, that they wanted to go on. But uh, then we looked at it and, and planned at THQ to open this making a general audition for the band. And we wanted to start a kind of national band. And that was the first step. And we did this and uh, I tried to be wise. I got a friend to do the audition with me. I got Michael Cluck over and we did an audition. I mean, you have to think that in that time we maybe had just over 80 senior bandsmen in the whole country. And you maybe would have in two course in London. Uh, so we, and about 50 people came to audition. And out of that, we tried to form a group and uh, then we had, first of all, the idea to call them national band. And somehow we found out that just, just 50 years before the old German staff band had to finish and played for the last time in the food set. And uh, then we tried to get the name staff band for it. And then it went on really. Uh, and I must say I had a great, great time. It was for many of the the little core groups, brass groups we have, very encouraging and helpful to get the standard a bit higher of the players and things, yeah. And as I say, the rest is history. But let's look at that history a little bit. I, I believe that one of the earliest trips that you had with a band was to the recently reunified East Berlin shortly after the collapse of the Berlin Wall. Can yeah. you tell us a little bit about that trip and perhaps its significance? Yes, we, we went uh, to a place uh, not far from Berlin uh, where they had absolutely not seen the Salvation Army at all. They thought just uh, a feel you can't uh, really explain. The people were so open for this and uh, had questions all the time. And uh, I remember just it was in that time, in the beginning 90s, we went a second time to... Uh, Dresden. And uh, in Dresden, there we met a few people, Salvationists, they left, uh, they had their meetings in the underground during the DDR time. And uh, they showed up in a kind of, I don't know, kind of uniform. I, I don't know how they made things together. Very strange, but their tears in the eyes to see people from the Salvation Army. You, I, I will never forget these experiences to see these people. And since then, of course, the band has travelled all around the world, really, to yeah. share the news of the gospel. Have you got any other highlights of your time as bandmaster? Uh, I mean, uh, the first visit to London to the bandmasters and songster leader concerts in '94 was just great. I mean, I'd been to the Albert Hall in 68 to sing with a little male voice group from Solingen in the youth year 
Uh, but coming back and uh, being part of this great event, that was just fantastic. Yeah. What would you say was your most significant memory of your time being bandmaster? The most special thing is, of course, uh, uh, the anniversary from the ISB in, in the Albert Hall and the weekend around. But uh, to go to places in Germany where they didn't know the Salvation Army, to being part in church days in Germany and really getting the, the idea in the people's mind change what they thought about the Salvation Army. And the German Staff Band has quite a unique ministry, as do Salvation Army bands all around the world. But I was very privileged to be able to play with a band uh, a good few years ago now, the band in Stuttgart, as part of a uh, church festival in yes. the city. How is the band received by other churches and uh, used to share the gospel in Germany? Uh, very well received now, I must say. Maybe what, what you never had in, in England that people would have a little distance to all kinds of uniforms. That happened really uh, after the war and it took many, many years to change this. And so they were always a bit reserved, would you say that in English, reserved to us and uh, looked a bit strange to us, but um, that has changed, especially during the work in church days, being part of that. So we could, Give, have some influence, I would say. And certainly in the UK, that's not really something that we have church days. So would you be able to just explain what that sort of format is for the international listeners? Yes. Uh, then uh, maybe the Protestant church would meet uh, for a couple of days in a, in a town, it's like Stuttgart, you, you mentioned this, and would stay there and have meetings, uh, discussions, also political discussions, and uh, uh, they would maybe meet for four days, and at least altogether you would have maybe 100,000 Christians, Protestant Christians in that town, and all kinds of free churches, and uh, that is very, very special, and we could take part in many of these uh, events. Uh, one was ecumenical, and uh, Yes, yeah, very interesting to have all the Roman Catholics to the Protestants people and having meetings and things together. Fantastic, thank you. And another part of your legacy, uh, not just the German staff band, was your role as Territorial Music Secretary. And as yes. part of that, you were responsible for running the German Music School each year. Yes. Could you tell us a bit about the music camp and how it works? Yes, uh, it started really off in... 1975, uh, Colonel uh, Walter Flade, uh, he started again with the National Territorial Music School, and we were not so many people. And I was one of the young instructors there, and uh, it was more or less a free time, a holiday camp. 14 days, which days off in between, we went to the Baltic Sea for swimming and all kinds of things. Uh, but the interest in these things grew really. And uh, uh, after a couple of years, uh, I had the chance to take the responsibility over for the musical part of it. 
and we changed system. So we went down from 14 days to nine days, but really it was the first weekend and five days, five working days in between. And that changed more or less really to a music school with theory and singing after a while. And uh, that grew up. And at the last years in Plön, we went up to about 100 campers or members going there. And uh, a shame really, they tried to sell our own army camp area in Plön. So we, had to, we have to go to other places now. And during Corona pandemic, it didn't work at all. So this year we will start again with the music school. Hopefully it will improve and uh, encourage people again. Fantastic. Really exciting. Wish you all the best with that this year and the continuation in the future. You've had some great guests as well join you at the music camp over the years, haven't you? Yes. Uh, we had Michael Clark, I mentioned first. We had Ray Bose. We had Les Condon. We had Brian Burdett. Uh, we had Derek Kane. We had Andrew Blythe. Can't remember them all. We had uh, um, Howard Evans. So always guests to encourage people to come, having something special. Fantastic. Now, we touched upon it a little bit at the start of the interview, but uh, not only has your influence been key in Salvation Army banding in Germany, but you've also been a real pioneer of brass bands in the wider scene outside of the Salvation Army. And we talked about your... Uh, position at the Folkwang Conservatory. Uh, you're also the conductor of the Cologne Concert Brass Band. Yes. How did uh, that come to be? Yes, uh, they, they asked me when they had a, a, a hard time. Uh, the band went smaller and smaller and they asked me to come maybe for a year uh, to run the band. Uh, and I did. But like it is always, if it's working well, and they ask you to stay, and we kept on going, but we couldn't play really during the pandemic. It was just done. And after that, uh, it's now extremely difficult again to get the band together. What's next for you now after your retirement from the German staff band? <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm still doing a bit of conducting and uh, uh, keeping the little core band together, playing a bit, and still playing a bit in the kind of district or divisional band. Uh, yeah, keeping me fit, hope so. Fantastic. And my last of the more serious questions uh, for you is throughout your life and everything that we've spoken about today and much more that we haven't had time to speak about, but how has your faith shaped your life and the way that you work uh, i think uh one of my very important experiences are uh, in reading uh romans what paul wrote to get to know that your belief makes you free really from other rules and law things and uh one of my main aims in christian life was to take care of my people, to show them that 
Yeah, we are responsible for each other. And this is something very special in Salvation Army, that we work with people. This is the main thing we do. We have great music, we have great meetings, whatever, congresses, but we have to look for every, every person, each single person, and take care. And that um, made, in a way, it possible to keep the staff band together in all that difficulties in little core groups, to be in little core groups, far away from each other and meeting every five, six weeks, we have to uh, take care for each other. Something very, very important for me. And that I learned from reading in the Bible, especially if you look through the Romans, what Paul gives uh, to us to, to think about. Um, yeah, that we really free in Jesus Christ, and he gave us his spirit. Right. Thank you so much for that, Heinrich. So we now move on to a quirky quickfire question section of the interview. So I've got a few uh, quickfire questions for you. Some are fairly normal, and some might be a little bit weird and questions you've never been asked before. So first one, fairly standard. Who is your favourite Salvation Army composer? Oh, that's very difficult. A few, really. Of course, it starts with Eric Ball, and uh, it goes Dean Goffin, I, I would say. I love some of his music. Heaton, he's one of my favorite composers. Difficult to play and sometimes difficult to understand. I couldn't stay with one composer. If you think that's difficult, then I'm going to narrow it down even further. Have you got a favorite Salvation Army band piece? Song of Courage by Eric Ball. But if I think, uh, I have right away many others in my mind. <laughs> so I, I mentioned Dean Goffin. Symphony of Thanksgiving is a great, great piece. Or Heats and Toccata, My Treasure. There we go. Good selection there, indeed. If you could teleport to a place that you've travelled to before, where would you revisit right now? For a holiday to San Francisco. Nice, fantastic. Sounds a good choice. In your opinion, what is the best traditional German food? Something maybe you wouldn't know. Green cabbage, green coal. Uh, but uh, for you, I have to say, really, sauerkraut. No? I, I would like this. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> With uh, a good uh, piece of meat to it and, yes, potato, mashed potatoes. Indeed. Sounds very nice. What is the best castle you've ever seen? Maybe in Bavaria, there's New Swanstein, or in, in Vienna, the old uh, King's Palace. Good choices. Have you got a favourite verse of scripture? Maybe in the Romans. If God is with us, who can be against us? Romans 8. 31. Um, if you could have dinner with any historical figure, who would it be and where would you take them to eat? I, I, I would uh, maybe would have a dinner together with Martin Luther. And where would you take him to eat? I, I would take him maybe to one of these big outside restaurants in Munich to have a chat with him sitting outside and have a great meal. 
Nice. Sounds like a good scenario. Uh, if you could choose to visit any city or region in Germany, uh, which one would you choose and what specific attraction or activity would you look forward to experiencing there? Uh, there are really two cities, but I would say Hamburg. Uh, this is a fantastic city to have the big harbour there and the possibilities to go on the water or to the seaside. It would be very special. Yes, we like this. And final question. If you could design a flavour of ice cream, what would it be called and what ingredients would it have in it? Ingredients would be difficult. Maybe I don't know all the names for it. It would have strawberry in it, maybe a bit of green pepper. Okay. And uh, a touch of chocolate. Nice. Sounds very refreshing on a hot day like this. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much, Heinrich, for the spirit that you answered those in. So that brings us on to Band Manager 2023. Band Manager, for those that don't know, each of our guests gets to choose two players to add to our fantasy band. These can be players that they've admired as players throughout the years or even people that have influenced them as musicians. So, Heinrich, who would your two picks be for the fully scored Band Manager 2023 band? Yes, that makes, me, makes it very difficult for me. Yeah. One person which I mentioned before had a great influence about my, my, my thinking about corner playing, especially in brass bands, it has been made by Derek Smith. But right. all the seats on the solar corner bench are not vacant. But... Um, this is no possibility. So I, I thought about a person which I remember from the old recordings on soprano, Ron Harrison. In his best days, he was a fantastic, just fantastic soprano player. Uh, and I, I would put seeing, uh, looking at the, at the bass section, I see Les Condon. So I have to put on the B-flat, first B-flat, uh, George Whittingham, he's a, a great person and he used to be a fantastic bass player. You remember, I'm sure you have heard this recording, playing the bass duet with Les Condon. Then the oldies are together. <laughs> well, thank you, Heinrich, for two great picks there for the band. They'll make great additions. And thank you so much for giving up your time to join this interview. Congratulations on your 34 years with the German staff band and a, a fantastic job. Uh, and a real legacy that you've left there, directing the band. And I know that all the work that goes on behind the scenes, most people won't see. But a really brilliant job you've done with the band and a real legacy that you leave for the Salvation Army and for music in Germany in general. Uh, and thank you for giving up your time to speak. Thank you for the invitation, being part of the Bully Scored uh, broadcast. Thank you, Heinrich, for your time and words but also for your tireless service to the German staff band through the good times and the tough times. Perhaps we'll never know the full extent of the lives you've touched in Germany and around the world from your leadership and time with the band. Now, in a smoother transition than a German-engineered gearbox, we head across the Atlantic to Andrew Wainwright to explore his variations on Vassalabet. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us once again on Fully Scored. It's been a while since we've heard your voice on the podcast. Yeah, it's great to be back, and uh, thank you for inviting me. 
Not a problem at all. The pleasure's ours. So we're going to be looking at one of your pieces today, Variations on Vas Lebet. And my first question about the piece would be, what was the inspiration to write this major work? Well, I had it in my mind uh, for a while um, to write a set of variations. Um, and I've always admired the writing of Ken Downey in particular and um, Edward Gregson's Laudate Dominum, which is, of course, one of the classics of the genre. Um, so I, I had an ambition to write a piece like that. I'd never written a set of variations before. Um, so it was sort of stewing in my mind for a while. Um, and the tune Vas Lebet um, had also been in my mind for quite some time um, because I saw a lot of possibilities with, with that tune that, that could lend itself to a set of variations. So what can you tell us about the tune Vas Lebet, if indeed I am actually pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, I think that's actually correct. Um, well, it's actually an epiphany hymn that was written by John Samuel Bewley Monzel. That's a bit of a mount, mouthful. Um, for his Hymns of Love and Praise book, which was published in 1863, I believe. Uh, the first line is actually taken from First Chronicles 1629 um, and also from the Psalms. Uh, the remainder of the, the first verse tells of the wise men worshipping the infant Jesus um, in Matthew 2. And the Psalms are also referenced in verses 2, 3 and 4. Uh, the first verse is actually usually repeated at the end. Uh, the actual tune Vas Lebet comes from a German manuscript of 1754, um, where it accompanies the song Vas Lebet, Vas Schwebet. Um, I hope I've pronounced that correctly. Um, and the manuscript contains many tunes not found elsewhere, and they're, they're possibly arrangements of traditional songs. That's really interesting. Thank you for sharing that background. You mentioned that this piece, you saw a lot of opportunities in the music uh, and why you wanted to use it. What in particular was it about the melody that stood out and uh, gripped you? Well, there were a few inspirations, really. Uh, for some time, I'd had the tune Vas Lebet in my mind, probably through singing it on a Sunday morning at the core. And very often that's where the idea for a new piece comes from. I also have an affinity with the variations form, and it had been an ambition of mine to write a set of variations. Although I've written a few now, Vas Lebet was actually my first. Somehow the tune kept coming back to me and went around in my head in various guises, and that told me that there was probably a larger scale piece in there somewhere. Having decided to embark on the piece, I did a lot of listening to classics of the genre and took a lot from the process, so I suppose you could say this piece is a combination of that. I tend to think that you're a product of everything you listen to, so whether you know it or not, when you write a piece, you're, you're sure to have been influenced by something. In this particular piece, I think you can hear a wide range of influences. And just to put a timeline and a scale on it for our listeners, how long roughly did it take you from the initial uh, concept to the idea to completing writing the piece? It, it took the best part of a year, actually, uh, with a break in between. Um, so I had, I had two or three months off in the summer. I was working um, for the Salvation Army at that time in the music department here in Texas, um, so we had a summer camp and obviously you don't get a lot of time to write. So it gave me a bit of a break in between. I got back to it after that. Um, and I, I actually got to hear it for the first time at our Territorial Music Institute um, at Camp Hoblitzel here in Texas. Um, every, every year they have a reading session, which is quite useful for um, aspiring composers because you get to hear a piece for the first time. And uh, anyone who wants to comes along and they play in the band 
Um, and, and so um, this was one of the pieces that was played that year. Um, and I think I'd written maybe three of the variations by then. And, and the bandmaster that year, the, the special guest was actually John Lamb. Uh, so he conducted the band for that. So I know certainly that playing the piece here uh, with several different bands is a real instant hit. Uh, was it the same and received very well in its first performance when you heard it then? I guess you could say it was hard to judge from a player's or listener's point of view because typically you only get one rundown in these reading sessions and it's late at night when everyone's had a long day. So it was probably only after the piece started to get performed that I received feedback, which has largely been positive, I'm pleased to say. From what I recall, it was first played at the UK's Territorial Music School um, and also the Northern Summer School, I think, before it, before it was actually published. Uh, and then soon after that by the ISB and Enfield. I was, I was also sent recordings of each of these performances, so it was good to hear various interpretations. More recently, it was actually selected as a set test for the Swiss National Second Section. Uh, I, I'm just grateful when any band plays my music, so to see this piece pop up in various parts of the world is really quite humbling. Fantastic. So I think now would be a good time to head into the score and take a bit of a delve and go through section by section. Um, I think before we look at the introduction, though, it might be interesting just to talk about the structure of the piece, which will help us to navigate our way through it. So could you just briefly tell us a little bit about the structure of the piece before we go into detail? Yes, well, we have uh, an extended introduction uh, which leads into five contrasting variations. So that's the overall structure. Fantastic. So, should we look at that introduction first of all? And it's a all guns blazing start, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. So we've got fanfare cornets um, and we have uh, these accented semiquavers based on rising fourths, which is actually an inversion of the first two notes of the tune. Uh, underneath that and answering that, we have organ-like chords uh, with, with added uh, fists in the bass. Uh, and we also have a statement of the dotted rhythmic motif that we'll hear a great deal of uh, throughout the work. I, I picture this introduction being played in a vast cathedral, actually. Um, now, throughout the introduction, we'll hear snippets of the tune. Um, it's introducing the listener to, to what to listen out for later. What we don't have, like some variations, such as you know, Prince Thorpe and St Magnus, for example, is a full statement of the tune. In fact, we never hear the full tune until the very end. Um, so I kind of see it like a picture that's never fully in focus. Uh, you have hints of it being in focus at times, but it's never fully revealed until the very end. Fantastic. And after the music reaches a grand climax just before A, uh, it softens a little bit. Would you like to talk us through what uh, was in, going through your mind and the inspiration for letter A, please? Yes, well, I think we've had the all guns blazing here um, and this, this sort of impactful introduction. And I think we need some contrast here and, and just some dying away. And we, we go to the mellow um, part of the band. So you've got horns, baritones, euphoniums, basses uh, carrying the melody here. Um, and then after that, we return um, to, to the kind of blazing fanfare again.
and letter B sees us enter variation number one. What was your inspiration for this first variation? Well, I'm quite inspired by classical music, um, especially in my, my old age now. I listen to a lot more uh, classical music than I used to. Um, and I can, uh, so I'd, I would say the music is very classical in approach, uh, particularly this movement, the first variation. Uh, you can almost imagine it being played by strings. Um, I, I'd say a lot of my brass band music is actually quite symphonic in approach. Um, it, it's, uh, it's in the minor key mainly. Of course, the original tune is in the major key, uh, but this particular variation is largely in the minor key. Um, and right from the off, we have a reference to the tune in, in the staccato quavers in, in the horns. You know, that, that rising figure. I'd say the energy comes from a regular contrast between the, the cantabile references to the theme set against lively staccato figures. Uh, as snippets of the chorale come and go with the last phrase of the hymn completing the movement. see we have a more extended passage based on the rising theme. Uh, it's an interesting combination of instruments that, that carry the, the tune here. So first cornet, horns and euphonium. So the cornets are in the lower register, uh, horns in the mid register and euphoniums in the high register. So this combination of instruments in different registers creates an interesting timbre. <laughs> is continued but in the trombones in octaves which gives quite a, a sinister timbre I think. Uh, and we've got this bass rhythm underpinning it which is also irregular and unpredictable which creates a sense of instability. Moving on to E the melody transfers to the bass uh, and we have some contrapuntal activity in the accompaniment above it. There's a fair amount of contrary motion in these parts with the baritones going up and cornets going down scale-wise. Um, and I've always thought this is the foundation of good voice leading as opposed to parallel motion. To end the movement, we have an emphatic statement of the, uh, the end of the chorale in the relative major, which gives it a sense of resolution, I think. very well orchestrated uh, and a good idiomatic use of all the, the instruments here in the school. Who are some of your inspirations when it comes to brass band orchestration? Um, for this particular work I would say there's certainly influences of Ken Downey, Kevin Norbury, Eric Gregson, Philip Wilby, Eric Sarty even and someone's even said Michael Jackson <laughs> for, <laughs> for one of the movements so you, you'll probably hear that later. Um, but I only realised that afterwards that actually, <laughs> yeah, 
There's a bit of smooth criminal in, in there, believe it or not. <laughs> nice, you'll definitely have to point that out when we get there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that takes us on to the second variation. How does this contrast the first variation? So after all the activity and busyness of the first variation, the second variation is melancholy and restful, I'd say. Uh, We've also had a lot of loud music until this point, so I think it's important the listeners' ears are given a rest. I had in my mind the words of the second verse when I write this movement. Um, So the words of which are, Low at his feet lay your burden of carefulness. High on his heart he will bear it for you. Guiding your sorrows and answer your prayerfulness, guiding your steps in the way that is true. And there's definitely a sense of yearning about the music here. Uh, There's a fair amount of tension in the harmony, which for me refers to the sorrows uh, that it talks about in this verse. Uh, For example, the use of the major sevenths, which which grind against the otherwise tonal harmony. And the mellow instruments are featured more than the brights for much of this movement. For instance, the, the flugel, horns, baritones, euphoniums and basses. Letter J, the music opens up and becomes quite expansive and emotive. In terms of the motifs, uh, the first two notes of the tune are turned upside down, so we have a falling rather than rising fifth. The movement ends with a sense of dying away. I I guess it could have been marked morendo, which would have been appropriate for what's happening here. So we have this dotted rhythm repeated several times as it fades to a pianissimo chord, which brings some form of resolution for now. So after that fragility of variation two, we enter some angst and agitation with the third variation. We do, and uh, I'd say the music quite quirky and volatile here. and it takes its inspiration from the third and fourth verses of the, of the tune, which describe the fearful times in life that we must entrust to the Lord. Uh, there's probably elements of Shostakovich in here, actually, as well, in terms of the, the musical content. The rhythm is driven by the percussion and the bass section in particular with ostinato figures. Uh, there, are, there are references to Variation 1 as well, with its chorale-like figures and hurtling scalic figures, and it's generally quite abrasive, as, as you say. 
Uh, letter N, we have a, a quasi-fugue. By that I mean we, we have various voices entering with the theme at various times, but it doesn't follow the traditional form of a, a fugue, as it's soon interrupted by the chorale. Uh, the real fugue will, will come later in the fifth variation. So you mentioned there's a little hint of a fugue there. At this point in the writing process, did you know that the final movement was going to take a fugue? Was this a deliberate reference? Yes, um, it was. And in fact, I don't believe that I wrote the piece chronologically. Um, So I think I started the fifth variation quite early on and and possibly the second variation. Um, But the rest followed. Um, I think it's John Williams, the film composer, that said it it often helps to to start writing pieces at the end. And then you can work your way through because you you have an idea of where the music's going going to finish up. Um, So I think that was the case here. Tell us about some of the textures that you're exploring in this movement. Yes, I think in a piece of music of this scale, it, it pays to vary the texture where possible. Otherwise, things become rather monotonous after a while. This particular movement is built on a fair amount of contrapuntal music or polyphony, where we have two or more simultaneous melodic lines. To me, this is perhaps the most challenging kind of music to write, but at the same time, I think it's probably the most interesting to listen to. If you glance through the score, there there isn't really anywhere where there isn't some kind of movement in one part or another. So very often, if one part is holding a note, something rhythmic is happening elsewhere to carry the momentum forward. Added to that, we also have the use of straight mutes in cornets and trombones, which creates another subset of instruments, I think, and gives us a variance in colour. Towards the end of the movement, the music dies down somewhat, not in terms of tempo, but in the reduction of instruments, which thins the texture out. And we also have a lowering of the dynamics. It also closes in the minor key, which to me suggests a sense of our completeness in Christ is yet to be resolved. So that takes us on to the fourth variation. Where did your inspiration come from and what were you trying to depict in this movement? Well, there's very much a French Romantic feel to this movement. I'm quite inspired by the Romantic period in general. Um, I, I don't know that I was listening to any particular music at that time that this represents, but uh, with with so many things in composition, it's subconscious, I think. An idea comes to mind, and it was somehow based on the theme. Um, but, but there was an idea to start with a horn solo. Um, and actually, it carries it through for for several bars um, before the the melody is taken on by various other soloists around the band. Uh, The texture in this section is a lot lighter uh, than previously, uh, after the intensity of Variation 3. And I think it's important that there's some breathing space in the score. Uh, Again, you can imagine it being being played by a chamber string orchestra, I think. There's a lot of quasi-pizzicato, and it's really quite playful. Uh, There's also an underlying sense of humour to it, I think. Uh, Probably more so than any of the other movements, for sure. Uh, As I said, we have a few solos thrown around the band. So we start with solo horn, um, euphonium, flugel, soprano, cornet and trombone all take up the the, the tune at various times. The harmony uh, is quite chromatic at times. 
um, which I guess is um, representative of the, the French Romantic style. Uh, but we even have the whole tone scale thrown in, in in a couple of places, which I guess is quite unusual for Salvation Army music. So after that soothing balm, uh, we yet once again enter a slightly more frantic variation, the fifth variation, where we have the fugue. Can you tell us about how you went about creating this melody that worked as a fugue motif? I found it quite challenging writing a fugue. Uh, I'd never written one before. Uh, and of course, you have to obey all the rules for it to work correctly. Otherwise, it just doesn't pan out. Um, so it took a lot of refining to get the lines exactly right so that they would overlap with each other. Um, so it is a fugue in the traditional sense, um, in that we have a subject, an answer, and then several episodes. So we start with the solar cornice with the subject, uh, then the horns enter down a fifth as the answer, followed by the basses and euphoniums, and finally the baritones with the horns at letter Z. have the subject in in the bass in augmentation and above that the rest of the band is jumping around with various strains of the theme. It's at this point that we come to the finale and this is the first time that the tune is presented in its entirety. And what sort of emotion uh, were you trying to find with your harmonisation and interpretation of that first presentation of the melody at CC? Well we've, we've had the tune earlier in the minor key um, never in its full form, as you say. So I think it's, it's very much a, a majestic arrival here. Um, again, you can imagine this being played in a big cathedral. That was what I was picturing in my mind. Um, and we have the chorale with the tune um, in the, the, the back row cornets, the flugelhorn and the upper horns. But we also have a decoration figure, so a continuation of, of the the theme from the fugue here in the soprano, solo cornets and euphonium.
was it on your mind the any word painting or reference to the words as you were writing and harmonising this section? I think the words are very important here. And as I said earlier on, the last verse of the hymn contain the same words as the first verse. Um, so they read, O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, bow down before him, his glory proclaim. With gold of obedience and incense of lowliness, kneel and adore him, the Lord is his name. Uh, and that picture of kneeling and adoring is such a powerful one, isn't it? Here we are bowing down to our creator, the one who made all things. So naturally the music is very majestic and the chords are rich and full. We also have a walking bass line at, at double D, which gives a sense of power and strength, I think. Uh, the blazing fanfares at the end of the work, which, which lead into the final few bars, also elicit this sense of grandeur and majesty. Is there some deliberate symmetry between the opening motifs and the ending here? Very much so. I think um, you definitely hear that fanfare figure which, which returns, and it 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 helps bring the piece to a conclusion that there's that reassurance of our com- completeness in the Lord, I think, here. And I'd be interested to know, how much did this piece evolve and change over the period from your writing to its eventual publication? Well, not many people know this, but the published version is actually shorter than the original, as there was actually a second statement of the big tune at the end. Um, I talked to Stephen Cobb about the piece and he felt it would be too much of a challenge stamina-wise for most bands to have that, that second presentation of the tune. Um, and uh, I, th- I think the piece is probably long enough already, but that, that particular presentation that wasn't published was an even grander version with um, thicker chords that re- referred more to the introduction. Um, and I quite liked it, but um, I, I tend to agree with Steve that for most bands it would be a bit of a push to, to pull that off. That's really interesting. Not something I knew. So thank you for sharing that little inside knowledge. So for anyone looking at the score or listening to the music, you can can see there's a lot of percussion here in this uh, build up to the ending. Why was the use of percussion so important at this moment in particular? Well, I think if you looked at the score up until this point, I'm, I'm quite sparing in the use of percussion. Um, and I think this is one of the, the techniques that, that brings this sense of finality to it. Um, you know, we've got all guns blazing in the percussion here. We've got the timps rolling. We've got the tubular bells. Uh, we've got clash cymbal as well and suspended cymbal um, rolling into the ending. Um, it, and it goes back to, to this scene of a cathedral, I think, with the tubular bells um, pounding away there. My mother-in-law always jokes that I, I managed to get these into every piece. <laughs> Um, so, and so it is the case here, but I think it was quite appropriate for this piece in particular. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us and to give us an insight into this epic work. But thank you for giving us a a little tour through the music and your thought process there. And thank you again for giving up your time to join us. Well, thanks very much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. And I I love the podcast. I listen every month. um, So keep up the good work. Thank you, Andrew, for delving deeper into that wunderbar work. 
It's now time to welcome the second generation of the Schmidt family onto this episode as we journey to somewhere very far away from Central Europe indeed. Well, Ruben, thank you so much for joining us on Fully Schooled, and specifically the Arid Island. So I think it would be, first of all, a little bit remiss of us if we didn't ask you, as we've been speaking to your father earlier in this episode, if you could give a little bit of a tribute and perhaps some inside knowledge of seeing his work firsthand. Yeah, my father was always a big, big encouragement for me because he's like, um, so he was always so, so committed to the work, not only in the staff band, but especially also in our core band as well, where he's now the bandmaster for over 52 years or 53 years now. So a really, really long time. And he was always, he's always very, very committed to what he's doing. And also uh, musically was always a big encouragement to me, taught me from an early age on first the cornet which wasn't a very big success <laughs> but then but then the horn was much better so um and it was always a big encouragement and i always admired about him that he tried to like spread the gospel and um especially bring the bands outside even in solingen we try to do that all the time and in the staff band as well we always try to go outside to the people all people's homes everywhere we could go every trip we did so I really um, appreciate that. And I really think that's a big uh, encouragement for me. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing those few words. And it's clear to see what an impact your father's had on you, as well as many other people around the Salvation Army world. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do? I know in some ways you're following in your father's footsteps in the music career, but could you tell us a little bit about your career? Oh, I'm a, I'm a music teacher, a high school music teacher. Um, uh, so German high school or German middle high school are joined together. So I'm teaching grades five to 12 in music and also uh, some history classes as well. So which I really enjoy doing as well. And um, yeah, I have a orchestra there, a singing group and all that kind of stuff. And um, I love writing myself some music and um, I do some writing for that orchestra as well at some, sometimes. But I also try if I have time, because lately I have been very, very busy with stuff, but um, uh, try to write, of course, for the army as well and do some, give some, uh, something back that the army gave to me all my life. So that's what I try to do as well. Fantastic. And it's been great to see your name appearing on the upper right hand corner of lots of pieces of music more recently. And you're also part of the German staff band and have been since 2001. Is that right? Yes, yes. It's a long time ago now, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. Now that does bring us on to the all-important question. If you were stuck on an arid and deserted island and could take with you one album, what would that album be and why? So it's I have lots of favourite albums, I must say, but one album which really like always stuck out to me because it was like one of my childhood early childhood favorite albums because I found it in my dad's uh, CD box and I first looked at it because it had like a weird cover because it has like two angels on it two staff bands 
uh, like dressed up as angels and it's uh, a weird cover but the music on it like really inspired me from an early age on the cd is called sweet by and by by the csb from 1992 so it's a quite old cd but i still really enjoy listening to it because it has like um, so many different styles of music exciting music uh, like the great Revi uh, revival by william gordon for example, Great Marches, Cairo Red Shield, which I still love playing. We just recently played that in my contest band, and it was I still really love that piece too. Uh, so swing style music, exciting music, uh, devotional music. One of my favorite devotional pieces is on it too, For Our Transgressions. It's like a great piece of music uh, with a deep, deep message, which I really, really enjoy. And also there's a classical transcription. I'm also a fan of classical music, so I like playing classical transcriptions. Um, and Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony is on it too. So I really, really enjoy it. And there's also some really great uh, solo playing on it. And one piece always stood out to me as an early kid because I loved it so much, a sweet by and by by Len Valentine. It's like Steve Brown plays it on the flugelhorn on that CD. And it's such a great, great number. Still, it's a great number. And um, I really loved, always loved to listen to that piece as a, as a boy. And it's really inspired me just like in listening to it. Like it's made me so happy all the time. I don't know how, how to say it really well in English, but <laughs> it made me really, really inspired me. And it's, a, it's, a, it's just a very great, great playing, great CD with lots of uh, different kinds of music. And um, that's why it's one of my all time favorites, I would say. Fantastic. And a brilliant choice of album there. And you're absolutely right. A real iconic album cover there. I'd love to know <laughs> whose idea that was. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Thank you so much, Ruben, for joining us on Fully Schooled and for sharing that with us. And I hope that we'll be able to hear from you at some point again in the future of the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thank you, Ruben, for your time and album choice. We did ask Ruben and Heinrich if they'd be able to recreate that iconic album cover for us to use as artwork for this episode, but apparently they've both misplaced their wings. Convenient. Now, speaking about Heinrich, I think it's about time for him to take his place in the Bandmastermind hot seat. So, Heinrich, thank you again for joining us on Fully Scored. You're now in the Bandmastermind hot seat. Uh, and just for listeners that may not know what Bandmastermind is, it's a quiz about Salvation Army brass music. You'll have one minute and 30 seconds to answer as many of these questions correctly as you can. So, Heinrich Schmidt, are you ready to play Bandmastermind? I try, I try. Then your time starts now. <laughs> Which band was Paul Lovett Cooper's Fire in the Blood written for? Oh, the Ice B. Correct. In which decade did Eric Ball first appear in Salvation Army band journals? I'm not sure. 1910. Very close, but not quite correct, I'm afraid. Which piece was published first, Easter Glory or The Holy War? Easter Glory. Correct. Which staff band recorded an album called Escape Velocity? I'm sorry, don't know. No worries. Soleil de Gloria by William Himes imitates the music of which Baroque composer? Uh, Bach. 
Correct. Who is the current principal cornet of the Canadian Staff Band? Oh, uh, Marcus Venables. Correct. The Angola Staff Band have recent, recently recorded a single. What's the name of the single? I'm sorry, don't know. No problem. What was the last piece by Wilfred Heaton to be published whilst he was alive? Uh, it's... I, I'm sorry, it's not coming now. No worries, we'll pass on that. Who wrote the march? Sheffield Citadel. I'm not sure. Maybe we're for teaching. I don't know. It's a good guess, but it's not quite correct. And that is our time up, I'm afraid. So that gives a score of four, which is a very good score for Bandmastermind. Puts you right in the middle of the leaderboard. <laughs> a very, very good score. I'll just go through the answers quickly for the ones that you didn't quite get correctly. Uh, so the, you were very close in which decade Eric Ball first appeared in the Savage Diamond Journals. It was 19, the 1920s, I believe 1922 to be exact. Um, the Staff Band, which recorded an album called Escape Velocity, is the Amsterdam Staff Band. Uh, the Angola Staff Band's recently recorded single is called, and I apologise for the pronunciation, Kinuanga Ko, I Can't Make It Without God. And the last piece uh, by Wilfred Heaton to be published whilst he was live was Mercy's Light in 1992. And finally, the march, Sheffield Citadel, was written by Herbert A. Mountain. So there we go. As I said, four is really isn't a bad score for Band Mastermind, and you can relax now. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, Heinrich, thank you so much again for giving up your time to join us. It's been a real privilege to speak to you. It was a Pleasure for me. Thank you very much. I hope it was not too, too crazy. I'm sorry. Crazy's good. We like that. (laughs) Sparsely scored. We are still awaiting a correct identification of the sparsely scored excerpt. So to make things a little bit easier this month, we're adding the solo cornet part into the mix. If you can guess what the pieces were the latest edition, then send us a direct message on any of our social media accounts to be in with a chance at being crowned the first ever fully scored, sparsely scored champion of the world. Just rolls off the tongue. Here's your first listen. And here it is again. If you know, let us know that you know, and we'll let the world that you know that you let us know that you know. There may even be a prize for the winner. Now, listeners that are good with maths may have clocked that by the end of the season, with each guest nominating two players for the fully scored band manager band, we won't be able to fill the band entirely. Well, that's because periodically we'll be opening up to our listeners to nominate a player themselves. The first place that we'll be opening up for nominations is the position of Principal Percussionist. Don't worry, we'll put a Facebook post out shortly with more details, but this is just a heads up to our avid listeners to get your thinking caps on. We're looking forward to hearing your nominees. So, 
As a quick reminder, if you're not already following our social media pages, make sure to do so to keep up to date with the latest and have your say. Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for in this month's instalment. But before we depart, a few thanks. Dankeschön to our wonderful trio of guests, Heinrich, Andrew and Ruben. Your time and your thoughts are greatly appreciated. Danke to our fantastic producer, Simon Gash, for slicing and slaving away with the editing software to produce yet another epic episode. Danke to Wobplay, or perhaps it should be Wobspiel, for hosting our podcast and handcrafted playlist alongside it. And lastly, Danke Sean to our listeners wherever you're tuning in from around the globe. See you next time. Auf Wiedersehen and God bless.